welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. You sound like a ninja. Exactly. Ninja are the ultimate scouts. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian. Today's episode is White Blood, our fifth episode on MGS4, Guns of the Patriots. We'll wrap up the second act today as Snake and Drebin blast through Liquid's forces to escape South America while doing our patented character analyses of Vamp and Raiden. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. Before we get started, I did want to give a brief announcement here. Um, By the time this podcast episode releases, I will have launched uh, my Lord of the Rings podcast, my brother, my captain, my podcast, which should be available on all the streaming podcast applications you may be using. The podcast, again, is a 20-year celebration of the Lord of the Rings films, and I'm very happy to be doing it with my good friend, uh, Emily Robinson, who is a very giant Tolkien nerd of sorts, so I think it'll be great, so stay tuned for that. Snake, have you lost sight of the target? Whenever something moves, it leaves a trail behind. Track and find Naomi's trail. I'm not like Big Boss. Tracking isn't my strongest suit. We pick up today with the aftermath of the Laughing Octopus encounter. If you recall, PMC soldiers had squirreled away Naomi while Snake took on the beast, and now he has to pick up her trail and track her down. Raiden makes another one of his ominous codec calls, giving Snake a quick wiki-how on how to track, emphasizing that he must rely on all his senses. Snake immediately notes that Raiden's tactics are giving off major ninja vibes, to which Raiden says yes, very much ninja vibes. All this portends Raiden's appearance at Act's end. From here on, the night vision mode of the Solid Eye is your best friend. Snake can better make out the series of footsteps leading away from Naomi's research lab. The wide-soled boot marts indicate PMC troops, whereas Naomi's high heels, of course, leave lighter, triangular notches in the dirt. You'll essentially follow these for the first area here, noting that multiple boot tracks crisscross and lead the wrong way. Early on, we get our requisite pissing soldier sequence. He's peeing off a ledge on a side path you can skip entirely, though there are some custom weapon parts here. Taking the main bridge will get you to an intersection of three different tracks, including one that uses a recording of Naomi's voice to lead Snake into an ambush. It's worth noting that if Snake triggers an alert, frogs will come to investigate, not just PMC troopers. And I should say alert or caution. Eventually, Snake crosses a river and Naomi's tracks disappear entirely. She was apparently carried by one of the PMC guys, and his boots now leave deeper tracks that come up even brighter in night vision mode. This portion gets a little trickier, as there are frogs doing the sentry work here, and they can hear the buzz of your solid eye. Naomi's shoe prints do show up again, but the strides are too far apart and lead you into another trap. There's a guard setting a claymore mine as well, who is easy to hold up, or if you're choosing violence, you can just blow it up in his face. Various parts of Naomi's clothing are left behind, usually to 
throw Snake off the right path. This isn't a Leaves of Lorien situation. The tracking sequence ends when you come upon a cave entrance, which leads us into the next segment. Did want to give some space to talk about this tracking section generally. In a way, it's a play on some of the techniques used in the end battle in MGS3, as in the Cobra member, the end, not the end of the game. Uh, but it's not nearly as fun or rewarding, though. Uh, what are your thoughts on this segment, Brian? Not nearly as fun or rewarding is a good descriptor for a lot of MGS4. But um, I actually kind of forgot about this until we were, we were just like, going through this stuff again. It, it's a fun little sequence. Like, I think it's neat. Um, it's something Snake doesn't really do that much. Uh, like, I, I hate to say it because it's a game that came out after this, but like Arkham Asylum style, like tracking one person, like detective stuff, he doesn't do very much, mm-hmm. which is, it's, you know, different. It's one of the few, I think, really unique gameplay segments to this game, which makes it, you know, at least worth mentioning. I kind of like how this general act breaks down because we talk about, you know, the lack of gameplay and the lack of good Mm -hmm. stealthy gameplay like we get in the first part of this act. But I think if all the acts were kind of like this, where the first half of the act is, you know, traditional stealth and then the back half was some kind of not gimmick, but, you know, play on the Mm -hmm. stealth motif. Um, I think that would be better. Like if uh, in the act three, if you had, you know, a normal stealth, you know, part of the Eastern Europe, Europe segment, and then you had the tracking sequence or vice versa, I think people would generally feel yeah. better um, about it. Um, so I like the idea of throwing twists in. It just kind of sucks that already at the end of Act 2, we feel like we're kind of past all the traditional Metal Gear stealth maps uh, <laughs> that you get. Yeah, I mean, kind of five that went Arsenal gear, but that's mm-hmm. really like a short segment. It's not long at all. Even by Metal Gear segment standards, which yeah. is, you know, Famous for having their kind of modular, really quick bursts of, of gameplay stuff. Yeah. So I, th- I think this is pretty good. I think it's pretty clever. The night vision goggles do make it just super easy for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, though, you know, the way they crisscross tracks and kind of change some of the stuff, um, you know, the footprinting is actually pretty good. But I think once you play this through once, it's yeah. Yeah. pretty much yeah. straightforward. You know where to go. Um, it'd be kind of more interesting if they could kind of vary it per you know, play through, but I'm not sure if the tech was there given how much this game had to be compressed in the first place to fit on the PS3. It does, it does remind me a little bit of, um, I think it's the first real hints of Death Stranding. I think are this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. I think like path, like pathfinding stuff. Yeah. And that's, I still only played like 12 hours of Death Stranding, but I did enjoy it a lot. So yeah, Um, I, I enjoyed it. I just wasn't, in the right mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. Uh, just I had other stuff going on in life, and everyone did. I like Death Stranding, and I'm excited that now I get to really just play it for the podcast when we get to it. Um, I think that'll be a rewarding experience. In the subsequent cutscene, Snake finally comes up on Naomi, being escorted into a chopper alongside Vamp and PMC troops. Vamp is preparing for another attempt at hacking the system, like in the Middle East, but Snake shoulders his M4 and puts a bullet right in Vamp's forehead basically in the same spot that Raiden did to end the oil fence sniper hostage scenario in MGS2. PMC troops immediately open fire on Snake and close on his position. Vamp, for his part, takes the bullet pretty well. He spins around from the momentum of the gunshot, but catches his cell phone and still gives the order. The PMC troops with Naomi take all their syringe shots, and the test begins. Just like in the Middle East, the PMC troops and Snake are overcome by the, the nanos going haywire. 
Naomi, from the helicopter, yells at Snake to inject himself with the syringe she gave him. Doing so returns Snake to normal, but before he can do anything, a squad of Gecko arrive to end him. Drebin arrives just in time, however. He takes out some of the Gecko and gets under the just-launched helicopter, giving Naomi a 10-foot-ish fall down to safety and rescue. Little Grey coaxes her on, and once she's in, Drebin rolls over to Snake and opens up the back door. They book it out of there, with Snake taking to the roof of Drebin Striker to man the turret. As they leave the helipad, the PMC soldiers who had freaked out earlier start rising up in zombie-like states. They're still alive, but Liquid's hack has so thoroughly fucked their minds that they are no longer functioning people. It honestly reminds me of MGSV. Whenever you fight the Skulls, any regular soldiers in the area turn into zombies who stagger and grab at Snake with a very similar lurching animation. So we'll talk about the striker sequence. Uh, it's basically taking you past the Vista Mansion, which you uh, is where you enter Naomi's lab from, and then w- works you through a lot of the maps you worked through previously, uh, probably in some sort of asset, uh, you know, what's it called? Uh, economy. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is not something Metal Gear's ever really done before, so it's for, it's a very forgivable sort of sin. Aside from aside from the uh, keycard stuff, keycard stuff in one that was obvious, but. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm a lot more uh, forgiving of stuff from the '90s. Like it's just so much. There's only so much space you have to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you work your way through these previous maps, you're going to have to ward off zombified PMC troops. Um, you can use the turret that's on top of the striker, which you know you can basically plow the road with it. Um, but if you're going for a non-lethal playthrough, you're going to have to just kind of crawl along the top and just use non-lethal weapons to take out uh, troops and soldiers who are trying to climb on the striker. Um, you can also just not use the turret and use your lethal weapons. Um, on subsequent playthroughs, you have all sorts of rocket launchers and rail guns that can do better damage than just the um, the turret up top. Is uh, what's it called? The striker. Yeah. And uh, some of the troops are in power suits, which are kind of similar in design to the Walker gears from V. Um, They actually look, you know, kind of clunky compared to the ones in V, but um, you can kind of maybe see the idea where that germinated for Kojima. Um, After you work through some of the, you know, kind of reused maps, you get to the power station. And here there's a door that you can blast through, um, which will open up a new path and some new maps um, on your way to rendezvous with Otacon. And the maps that follow are basically, uh, what's it called, Uh, Drebin driving, and you are being chased by a bunch of geckos and briefly by an ATV, and you basically have to ward them off. Um, And this is, you know, where you can take out a bunch of gecko, and they kind of chase you in what feels like a very Jurassic Park (laughs) homage. Um, The way they're chasing you um, feels very much like the way the T-Rex does in that movie. I think it says a lot that I, uh, I guess this is another part that until I was going through the uh, outline a few days ago, I was like, oh yeah, that part. Because I just think of Act 2, like, I know it doesn't end after the boss fight, but it, it in my memory, just there's nothing much past that, which is interesting to go back. But I, again, I don't think this part's bad. There's nothing wrong with a nice set piece. Mm-hmm. That's what Uncharted's made its life off of for 15 years now. So, like, I don't know. It's just not super memorable, but there's nothing wrong with it. It's not bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't feel like it has any super memorable moments like a lot of other set pieces in the series or other yeah. games does. Yeah. Um, and it's also just a lot of Drebin, you know, cheering you on. There isn't, you know, a lot of times Metal Gear might, you know, relay some important information or put in some really good, you know, music for something like this. 
Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just fine. Um, and it's not as interesting as say like the motorbike chase in MGS three where Vogan's chasing you on the shadow hot or no. something like that. It doesn't even have like the cool destructive physics stuff going on mm-hmm. that they were able to do on a, on a Warsh console. Eventually, Snake and company crash into the local village where Gecko are terrorizing citizens in their pursuit of the player. The Gecko zero in on the team, but before they can attack, Snake spies a figure on the rooftops. It's Raiden, poised to enter our story proper. Man's about to go ham on a bunch of geckos, but before that, let's do our character analysis on the man once known as Jack. Snake, it's my turn to protect you. So Raiden, voiced by Quentin Flynn, who I don't want to ally, is a known sex pest. It's been some time since we've seen Raiden, and he's even more unrecognizable than Snake was at game start. Raiden was part of MGS4's plan from the get-go, and Kojima said from the outside that he'd be much more of a crowd-pleaser this time around. Of course, the time you want to actually play as Raiden, you can't. Something-something MGS-challenging power fantasies. Anyway... One thing we've been tracking in our MGS4 is the concept of proxies. From literal proxy war to the use of proxy servers, to how our characters are proxies to Metal Gear's own cast. Just as Old Snake is a proxy for Big Boss, Jack serves as our cyborg ninja proxy. He takes up the role with considerable flair, but plays on a lot of the same themes as the meme before him, but evolve for this world of 2014. Let's back up a bit. After the Big Shell incident, Raiden and Rose weren't able to make it work long-term. Memories of being a child soldier that bubbled up during MGS2 consumed Jack, and he became drunk and violent. He left Rose and would later be fed a lie that she had miscarried their child. As previously discussed, Campbell and Rose hid the child from Patriot's retaliation. Raiden would shortly thereafter meet Big Mama, aka Eva, from MGS3, and they were able to help each other out. Raiden made a promise to Olga Gerlukovich to save her child, and Eva was able to point him to Area 51 where Sunny was being held. Eva, in return, received information on the location of Big Boss's body, which as you see has become a giant MacGuffin for this game. And the location of Big Boss's body was in the GWAI and Arsenal gear from MGS2. Sunny was saved and left with Snake and Otacon, since Raiden seemingly lost it when Rose married Campbell. He headed first to Alaska, where he studied scouting from the local indigenous population. He would eventually hook back up with Eva to help her find Big Boss, but Raiden was captured in the process. This is where the Patriots used his body for exoskeleton enhancement surgery. His head and spine were real, but everything else was grafted onto the cybernetic body you see in this game. Raiden would escape, with Eva's help, and get his body cleansed of Patriot nanomachines by one Dr. Mannar, who was a character going back to Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake on the MSX. Subsequently, Raiden and Eva would finally track down Big Boss's body, and they kept it secret, <laughs> kept it safe, with the Paradise Lost group. I don't understand that reference. I, th- I think it's fucked up that they turned Raiden into a Spartan from Halo. Y- you'll, you'll get that reference eventually. Raiden's arc for this game is as punishing as Snake's, as he has near-fatal encounters with Vamp, the Frogs, and the Hull of Arsenal gear. Raiden loses a couple limbs during the course of this game, though I guess his body is already a phantom. 
Cybernetics has always been a key theme in Metal Gear Solid, especially in the spaces where science exists to address the horrors of war, but ends up creating more horrors in process. Uh, what are your thoughts on Raiden in this game? It's weird because I have to I have to divorce them from MGR MGR Raiden, even though he's very much this character continued. And I think one thing that really struck me because again I came to I played three. It was before four came out, but I, I was still wasn't like paying that much attention to it. And I remember not I I do remember watching the cutscenes for four before I played two, and I, so I knew who I vaguely knew who Raiden was, but I didn't know like. I was just confused as to why this guy was being punished. His arc in this game feels like he's being a big, big, he is shouldering punishment for some unforeseen, unseen crime. And like, it really does feel like, like they almost went out of their way to like torture him and make him feel pain because people didn't like him or whatever. And it's really strange, but it, it is also sort of his character. Like that's kind of the only character he has is the guy who gets abused, which is, Interesting, but kind of makes him, at least in this game, just sort of a punching bag and kind of a sad sack. Like, he just is a miserable, not even mean, he's just miserable the whole game, and it's just not the most enthralling character development. But they make up for it by having him have all the, the coolest cutscenes. <laughs> he gets to do all the cool stuff. He hates doing it, but he does, he does it. It's weird. It's a weird, uh, it's a very strange dynamic they have for him in this game. One of the interesting aspects of the marketing for this game is that a lot of these uh, Raiden and Vam scenes we're going to uh, be discussing here in the next couple minutes um, are actually were part of like the pregame rollout and advertising and marketing trailers. Like on top of um, some of the other trailers we talked about with, uh, you know, Snake putting a gun in his mouth and is this the end of Metal Gear? Um, there were significant trailers just about Raiden returning and they were all just him doing this shit of flipping around and kicking ass. And um, it was really strange, especially given, um, like you said, it's hard to kind of gauge where how much of this is a reaction to Metal Gear Solid 2 or the reaction to Metal Gear Solid 2 um, because they kind of made him badass, but then he's, you know, like you said, punished quite a bit in this game and kind of given a miserable backstory and it's just always miserable in this game. Um, and everything surrounding him with Rose and Campbell is miserable. Um, so there really isn't any positive uh, with Raiden. Uh, not positive in terms of, like, quality of stuff, but it's just, it's all very, you know, kind of depressing yeah. with yeah. him. But um, with all that, they kind of had him like forefront with the advertising and marketing push for this game and saying, hey, look, Raiden's back and this time he's cool, um, which just, I guess, kind of mixes that yeah. message even further. That's very mixed. Picking back up with the story, Raiden leaps down from the roof, doing his own Solid Snake version of the superhero landing. In another imitation, he flings off his long coat in the same way Snake ditched his cloak to open up this game, as well as the way he ditches it on the George Washington Bridge in Metal Gear Solid 2. We get a good look at Raiden now, who is in full cyborg ninja regalia, though his suit also bears similar markings to that of Solidus's. Drawing his katana, which is not the same one he used in the Big Shell, Raiden goes on to take out several gecko, flipping and leaping all over the place. It's not unlike Yoda in Attack of the Clones, but this is actually good. He leaps through their legs on top of their shells and shows off his Herculean strength in being able to pull them down single-handedly. As Raiden buys time, Snake and Naomi depart from Drebin and work their way through the village. Otacon is landing the chopper in the town square to extract our heroes. 
There is a very short-lived playable sequence here as Snake runs through the market town. Gecko will harangue you as you run between the stalls and through the alleys. The best bet is to just run, though a well-placed train shot and a gecko leg will slow them down a little bit. There are civilians running all around you, which is a touch I like. These are the people who die when the High Lords play their Game of Thrones. Different story, but same idea. In a world of forever war and privatized armies, those who suffer will always be the innocent, especially those in the global south like we see here. Snake and Naomi eventually make it to Otacon, who uses the Mark II to give Naomi a boost into the chopper. Otacon and Naomi look at each other for the first time, and both are like, Damn, you hot as fuck. Don't worry, that'll pay off sooner rather than later. Which is not a joke about Otacon's sexual prowess. You know Otacon's a generous lover. <laughs> Just ask Snake. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> when I say Snake gets in behind them, I am referring to the chopper. <laughs> and they take off. But they're not leaving without Raiden, which is another touch I really like. Snake and Raiden and Otacon work together for a time following the big shell, and even though Raiden ghosted them, they immediately show concern and come to his aid upon return. Bros for life. I remember that hero shot walking away from EE's body. And good thing too, because Raiden needs a little help right now. They find Raiden tied up by several gecko, with a gleeful vamp dancing towards our new favorite ninja. We'll get to their epic face-off here in a second, but now is an appropriate time to do our character analysis of Vamp, who acts as a foil or double helix with Raiden once again. <laughs> Yet again, our paths cross. Not a lot of info exists on Vamp since b- the Big Shell incident. Snake thought he was blown away on that oil fence many years ago, and South America appears to be the first time he's been revealed to the world since. He's clearly one of Liquid's most trusted lieutenants, and presumably has been working with him ever since, the Big Shell. When not wearing his long black trench coat, which again creates a Dracula cape or bat wing effect, we see Vamp in a more of a combat getup this time around, but without a shirt, and a lower half that resembles frog gear, though Vamp has blade claws as toes. He's got knives stashed in his wrists, at his waist, and presumably other places unseen. A giant scout knife hangs largely between his legs, and nope, no subtext there. It's not like he's named Vamp because he's a bisexual, or that he spends most of this game sticking things into Raiden, and vice versa. Across his neck hangs dog tags, which four of the five are confirmed to be that of his former dead cell comrades. I can imagine the fifth being that of Commandant Dolph, Fortune's dad, who Vamp also had a romantic relationship with. In that, the pain and the sorrow and even the joy of those we fought with and those we loved, we carry with us. Vamp has his own traumas and losses, and in the murky world of MGS4, I'm glad Vamp gets this little flourish. It's it's a little weird because he, he only seems to like fortune in that game. Like, I don't think he, he doesn't have any scenes with Fat Man and he seems pretty dismissive of Fat Man, but, you know, it's, it's fine. It doesn't, it's a, it's a small character detail. It's not really important. Immortality is said quite a bit in this game, but we find out the truth from Naomi. Vamp has nanomachines that effectively give him a healing factor, and they have grown more powerful with time, which explains his leveling up here. Naomi claims him as one of her sins, derived from the work she initially did on Gray Fox and the first generation of nanomachines. The obvious Marvel comparison here is Deadpool. 
No, I'm kidding. Of course, it's Logan, a.k.a. Wolverine. There are even shots where Vamp has knives between his fingers, very much an homage to our favorite Canadian shorty. Science that prevents death, or a fountain of youth, is of course one of life's most alluring fantasies, and one which Metal Gear has many spins on. Hell, Raiden's synthetic ninja body is one way to go about it. Superhuman generation, as is the case with Vamp, is just another. And in an odd way, it makes Vamp a foil to Snake as well, since Snake has a very finite lifespan, and one intentionally shortened. Vamp plays a big role in the next two acts of the story, including the final showdown with him at Shadow Moses. We'll discuss his boss fight then, but I really wanted to get his analysis in alongside Raiden's because they form their own double helix in this game, a phrase I'm using more and more in our analysis. I, I don't know. I'm not a big Vamp guy. Like, I don't know. He's, he's a great boss character in two, and he's like interesting, and Felmar is great, but I just never thought he could handle the weight of being like basically being the secondary antagonist of the game maybe tertiary but mm-hmm. i don't know he doesn't have motives he's just like i here to do i mean that's fine for i guess it's fine for a metal gear villain and i guess like i do like this the right and advanced stuff and it is the most anime shit in this game it just doesn't there are plenty of other villains i wish had been able to be the secondary villain in this game like solidus or liquid or even like just ocelot the old ocelot or Falcon Raven feels more important to me than Vamp. I don't know. Vamp is fine. I just don't. I don't even say he's a plot device because it's not plot. He's just a action trope doer. I don't know. He basically exists to give Raiden an antagonist for his storyline, is what I would say. And since Raiden doesn't have an arc, so he's not even an antagonist um, to Raiden, though. It's not like Vamp is the reason Raiden became this horrible cybernetic monster. Vamp is just a guy for him to fight. Mm-hmm. He's just another action figure to step in and fight with him. And like, I don't know. It doesn't... What is Vamp... I guess I guess they, they go through when he, his death scene that he just wants to be killed. And that's never a good character arc for... I, I never like that arc. It's, it's always... Lazy. It's obvious. I don't mm-hmm. know. Brighton's fine. I mean, Philomar is great, so he does good work. It's just not particularly interesting. All right. So, sorry for the delay, Millhouse. It's time to get to the fireworks factory. Vamp walks up to the ensnared Raiden, penetrating him deep with his scouting (laughs) knife, then cutting a line across Raiden's chest. Raiden barely flinches, causing Vamp to ask, You too, immortal. No, I just don't fear death. (sighs) Snake, having grabbed a sniper rifle, shoots free Raiden's bonds, and then all craziness busts loose. I wish I could properly describe the fight scene that occurs next, but it's so bonkers that I gotta say you should find it on YouTube yourself if you haven't seen it, and uh, also if you have seen it, because I think it's pretty cool. I will probably even post it into in the comments of uh, this podcast. We start with some Zoolander-esque breakdance fighting, <laughs> with Raiden spinning the remaining gecko around with his legs trying to smack Vamp. Vamp is doing the limbo, leaning unnaturally backwards whenever Raiden is about to land a blow. Raiden eventually cuts the gecko loose, destroying them, leaving the battlefield for Vamp and Raiden alone. Like I said, I can barely describe what happens next. There's a lot of flipping, a lot of knives, and most of all, a lot of penetration. They constantly stick and unstick themselves with blades, including ones in their feet which they use to dance on each other. 
Eventually, Vamp gets Raiden in a sleeper hold, but Raiden puts his own katana through his own guts and into Vamp, seemingly killing him for now. But, you know, we've seen this before. He Darth Vader's himself. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what I call that, because there was once a non-canon comic book where Darth Vader fought Darth Maul, and that's how he killed him. <laughs> Jeez, I do not know that one. <laughs> it, I don't know. It's just, that's, that's, I think it's the first time I remember seeing that trope of, like, stabbing you through yourself to, to uh, attack an enemy. So that's what I think of it. This gives Raiden enough of a window to leap up to the rooftops and into the chopper to finally reunite properly with Snake and Hal. Well, kinda. Raiden has lost a lot of blood and is at risk of bleeding out. Well, not blood blood, but white blood or artificial blood. He needs a transfusion stat, says Naomi. From the chopper, they all see Vamp rise from his latest wounds, which causes Atakan to say, Vamp. He's got to be immortal. No, he's not immortal at all. It was my design that caused his body to be like that. Huh? What do you mean? The nanomachines in his body caused his wounds to close and heal at an accelerated rate. Someone took the basic nanomachine technology I once researched and perfected it. In a sense, I'm responsible for Vamp. It's one of my sins. We see Vamp call Liquid. Apparently letting Naomi go was all part of the plan. I'm taking an awful risk, Vader. This had better work, is the sentiment here, as it now seems the villains are tracking our heroes. Their test in South America was a failure. Using Solid Snake's blood had mostly the same results as liquids in the Middle East, and it was obvious to them that they needed all of him, referring to Big Boss. We end the act with our heroes flying back to the Nomad, with Raiden portending the next move. Europe. Act 3 is going to be a doozy of plot, from meeting Big Mama to the big showdown with Liquid Ocelot, so I figure we can get the mission briefing out of the way ahead of time here. We open with Sunny singing the periodic table and forming a fast friendship with Naomi, who shows her how to properly cook eggs while Sunny tells her about her mother. Naomi gives us a big-ass info dump here, all while making fuck-me eyes at Otacon. We'll be getting into the Patriot AIs in one of the next few episodes, but Naomi lets us know that Big Boss's DNA and biometric data is the key to unlocking the entire system, hence why Ocelot told Vamp they need all of him. Not only were Solid and Liquid Snake's DNAs not a perfect match, but also they cannot be used again to try and take the system. The system prevents the same foreign attack code from being used against it. Of course, the eye-raising part of this is the need of Big Boss's biometric data. That would require him to be alive, which, lo and behold, he is. Well, not in a meaningful sense, but apparently his cells are being kept alive and have been since Solid Snake defeated him in Zanzibar land 15 years ago. Making Big Boss the heart of the system has always been a goal and a cruel jape that Zero wanted out of his former friend. That's something we'll explore more at game's end and especially into the remaining Big Boss games. We get some of the pitiable scientist routine from Otacon, since Naomi really needs to hear it. All scientists and corporations are implicated in the war economy, which, yes, no notes. We get some classic Otacon here talking about how anime got him interested in science in the first place. This comes with one of my favorite lines in all of Metal Gear, where Hal says, I used to be an anime otaku, and Naomi just says, oh, I imagine this is what it looks like when I tell my dates that I watch anime. 
Also, in case I missed it last time, I wanted to note that Otacon has a picture of Emma on his computer screen, and his backgrounds is a police knots one. Otacon and Naomi also talk quite a bit about Sunny and how she needs to be let out of the Nomad and join the real world. The Nomad is just another womb for her, after the one the Patriots had her in, and she hadn't even been born it's yet. It's a classic, uh, bizarre, psychosexual Kojima life. <laughs> Very much so. Where you're like, you're not wrong. It's just uh, very strange. He's a big fan of Dune, I can tell. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all this talk about wombs and carrying and Sunny being alive, it kind of makes me think about BB from Death Stranding. Uh, not in the same way, but he clearly has some some interest in wombs of sorts. Which, goddammit, Kojima. I think I think that's just him. I think that's him having pretensions of higher art because that's that's such a. Uh, that concept is generally like a, a literary, a literary major kind of thing. I don't also describe it. It's a it's very poetic, like without having to actually write anything interesting. I had mentioned that Atakan and Naomi had total doomy eyes this whole time, but Naomi's been up to something else as well. She's been playing with a USB drive hanging from her neck. This USB carries the starting point for the Fox Alive cluster that will take down the Patriot AIs. She's been meaning to slip it to Hal, but in the end, it's Sonny who will complete this program. But in the end, Hal slips it to her. Hey. <laughs> I think. You, you, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe not. Who's to say? No, I think they do. Cause, well, who's to say who is slipping it to who, I guess, is what I meant to say. Oh, I see, I see, I see, I see. <laughs> and, well, all that exposition was just foreplay, as Hal and Naomi do end up hooking up in the chopper carried in the Nomad's cargo bay. Snake seems to be vaguely aware of all this, but in classic Snake fashion, he could not give a shit. We will leave it there as our band of characters set out for Eastern Europe. Act was fine. It just, I don't know. I remember playing through it thinking like, oh, it's neat that we're starting to get into Metal Gear and not knowing that this is like the end of it being Metal Gear in any real notable way. That becomes something different. It becomes Metal Gear Solid 4, Guns of the Patriots. Yeah. Is it good? Is it bad? Who's to say? Me. I have to say. A question they ask literally at the end. So uh, we'll end the episode there, and let's play this section out to White Blood, the track that shares a title with this episode and one of my favorites from the game. So that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsoundsfrontieres at gmail.com and at podsoundsfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash manuclearbomb. Who is me? I've been Manu. I've been Brian. Nano's got me where I am today. Thumbs up. <laughs> Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, here's to you.
You sounded like a Oblivion voice actor there for a second. <laughs> yeah, it's like you ever heard those? No, I haven't. But <laughs> there's a bunch of lines in that. I give them some slack because it's 2006, but there's a lot of lines in that game where the they like they didn't edit them, so it's just straight up like the voice actor starts a line and he goes, "Oops, sorry, let me try again," and then restarts the line. Oh, it's sure. really funny. <laughs> That's it's funny. very funny. That's the, I didn't know that was in there. 